Thanks for joining the podcast with Tamara Gondor. Conversations with everyday innovators that reject status quo, think differently, and make a positive difference in their world. Listen in so you can ignite innovation, influence others, and make an impact too. And now your host, CrossFit addict, knee-high sock lover, and according to her kids, average cook, Tamara Gondor. Hey, everybody. Super excited. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. I have so many questions for you. I am so delighted to be here. Oh, delighted. That's a good one. (laughs) Here's where I want to start out. I was just telling you kind of offline that I had a a short career in advertising, especially relative to yours. Um, But I think for those of us who have been in it, we know really how hard it is to stand out in a sea of media and sensory and it's gotten worse but it's always been that way right there you know you're vying for people's attention asking them to do something in a very short period of time but so are a million other brands and businesses um and i think that it takes a lot of risk and it takes a lot of creativity to stand out so i just wanted to open up by asking you about how you see that how you see that willingness to take those risks, to be creative, to kind of push through that noise. Yes. I, in fact, you know what came, comes to my mind is a little story of uh, one of the early few weeks that I was at McCann. Now, McCann Erickson, the, the large, largest agency in the world, and of course, Young and Rue McCann was pretty close. Yeah, that's why we right were second way yeah, back yeah. in the 90s. <laughs> We had 15 floors of 753rd Avenue. That's a lot of floors, about 1,500 employees in the New York office alone, of which there was 230 offices. I step in the elevator, and there is a guy, elevator closes, and there's a man who looks like he was time warped from 1955. The hat, the briefcase, and he keeps looking at me, and of course, we're riding up to the 20th floor, and he goes, are you Kevin Allen? But yes, he said. Yeah, I heard about you. They say you're the most disruptive kid in the place. <laughs> Keep doing it. <laughs> it turns out that was none other than Gene Cummel, the chairman emeritus of the company. Yeah, yeah. And I subsequently had breakfast with him once a month for what might have been 10 years. And the thing he said most to me is, don't be wallpaper. You know, standing out. He said, but, son, stand out as you. Don't be, don't be somebody you're not, but make sure you stand out. And the other thing I would say is one of the terms I, I remember cooking up in my advertising career was what I called the category idiom. In other words, advertisers will tend to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, so if you look at car advertising, you know, cars on a windy wet road uh, and so on. And the, 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 the path to greatness is to step back from that and ask yourself, how can I go that way when everybody's going in the other direction? It's a wonderfully important point, not only from a marketing perspective, but, but for, you know, from your own individual growth perspective. So here's what I'm curious about. How do you convince others to zig while everybody else is zagging? Because that's a harder thing too, right? You've got I mean, I know I've been in the consulting world and used to be in advertising and, you know, clients aren't always as risk uh, accepting as the person who comes up with the idea. And I think that's true across business in general. So how do you, how do you think about influencing, convincing, getting other people on board for that journey? 
Well, it's a wonderful question. And I would answer it two ways. One is um, I, when I'm in the process of developing an idea, take for example, the, great, the greatest idea that was developed that I was involved in and I led at McCann was the priceless campaign. I'm from so Master. glad you brought that up. Yeah. And it changed everyone's life. But, and there were two ways in, an, with, in answer to your question. The first is there are four types of people that present themselves when, you're, when you've developed an idea. Catalysts, observers, followers, and resistors. Yeah? And catalysts are people that go, that's great, I'm in, right? Followers are kind of like them, but they're not quite confident to, to jump in the, in the pool. Observers, you know, you have a, the old expression, they sit on the fence, you know, they don't really care one way or the other, as long as they're on the winning side. But the resistor is sort of like, oh, well, you know, we tried that two years ago. So part of the process is twofold. One is, is to attack your catalysts and your resistors simultaneously. In other words, you enlist your catalysts, but also you try to understand why the people are resisting. And I guess I would pose the question, anyone who listening, what is the emotional motivation of a resistor? And it's fear. It's not that they hate you. I don't like the idea. It's that it makes them uncomfortable. So part of my objective is to understand that fear and bring them to me. Sometimes I find too that that fear is based on um, a th what they perceive as a threat to their job or their existence within the organization. So it's not, I think it's partially, I'm uncomfortable with that idea. That idea represents change. And I look irrelevant. I didn't come up with the idea. I don't, maybe it means more work for me. Maybe it means I work differently. Like I feel like fear comes in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways that we don't necessarily spend the time to recognize. Do you find it's that, so true. Do you find that spending that time to, have that discussion with someone because uh, people don't always realize why they're afraid too. like it's happening deep down sometimes, but do you have the conversation with them? Do you, how do you help them over the hurdle? It's a wonderful question. I was involved in three corporate turnarounds, uh, the McCann Erickson, Interpublic and Lowe. And the, I applied the process of literally taking the organization chart and mapping who my resistors and who my catalysts were, literally, yeah. and putting the yellow markers on it. Yeah. And to your point, I visited every one of them. It took me four months to visit 120 resistors around the low system, including traveling all the way to places like uh, Bangkok. And I remember, in answer to your question, going to visit this wonderful woman, Van Son, in our office in Bangkok. And she was like the queen of, of Thailand. I mean, this office was like a palace. And she was a very elegant woman and sat me down and she, I shall never agree to the strategy that you're embarking on, but I shall support you. And I was sort of like, what? <laughs> and she said, well, Vanson, I'm delighted, but why? She said, because you are here and you've asked me my opinion. And you asked me what concerns I had about them. So, um, and she became, and of course, a converted resistor is more powerful than a catalyst, needless to say. But to your point, you're right. Um, the first question someone's going to ask themselves when you're saying, hey, let's go here or let's try this is, 
well, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. I've never done that before. What if it goes wrong and so on? So you've got to, you've got to reassure people is the short answer. One of your big things about being the buoyant leader and leading with emotional intelligence. So talk, you've spent a lot of years leading and obviously done it well. So talk more about that and where emotional intelligence plays in. You know, I, I'm going to start talking about it from the point of view of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And here's what I mean by that. If you said hello to Kevin at five years old, he would burst into tears. You know, I was an immensely, I remember my aunt, I had an aunt Thelma, imagine aunt Thelma, and she was a nurse. And in those days, they wore these funny little white hats and little big red lipstick. I adored her. And I remember, as most kids will do, listening at the top of the stairs to what my mother and others were talking about in the kitchen, which was just below. And I remember listening and listening. And I remember Aunt Thelma going, you know, Joni, I worry for that kid is so fragile. I don't know what's going to become of him. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh, my God. And certainly when I became, you know, in my early 20s, being in the, in the business back in the, well, back in the 70s, um, there was an archetype for leadership, you know, it was, A, it was a male, B, it looked like a, a military general. They typically had a, a deep gravelly voice and they barked out orders. And I thought, well, if that's the definition of leadership, I ain't that. I can tell you that I was just talking to a group before earlier today. If, if someone put in, in the company leadership training, I just assumed it was for somebody else. I didn't self-identify as that. So by default, the one thing I did have, you know, you know that movie where the kid can see ghosts? I forget what it was. I see dead people, that one? It, yeah, it was the one with Bruce Willis. Yes, that's the one. The, the point is, just like he saw ghosts, I was given this extraordinary ability to sense how people feel. And that's both a blessing and a curse. You know, you walk into a room, you look around and go, okay, people are not happy here or whatever it happens to be. Call it my smeller or my emotional antenna. And that is what turned out to be the greatest asset I could have. And at the core of it is human empathy. So people will say to me, what is the top quality of leadership? Is it decisiveness? Is it? I said, no, it's, it's the ability to put yourself in the, in the shoes of others and connect with them um, to, to the emotional motivation they possess. And I guess it came instinctively to me, but it's teachable and it's the rootings of EBI. So it's so interesting because when I look back at my career and um, before doing my, you know, jumping ship and kind of doing my own thing, the bosses that I worked for, some of them really had it and some of them really didn't. Yeah. Um, and I definitely could tell you that the ones that didn't, uh, I didn't like, <laughs> to be honest. I, I mean, I was also in my twenties, so I was like, I don't like you, but, but no, I just like, I didn't feel like I connected with them. I never felt like a team with them. I, I felt, I never felt like they understood where I was coming from. And I wasn't asking for empathy of like, oh, I'm late giving you this deliverable. You should empathize because I was up late last night. And right. I, whatever. It wasn't that it was just, we just never really connected. Um, but I do find that like, you know, some people who are introverts or um, just more task oriented or even goal oriented sometimes struggle, sometimes struggle with that empathy. And I, I do find that active listening is a great start. Have you found other tools that have helped you or other people on your team, maybe not become as intuitive as you are, but at least get that muscle going? There's a, I spent a lot of time with companies 
like the sorry, like like the Googles of the world and others um, who have this problem. You know, people come up through the ranks of being immense technology leaders, and and then overnight, boop, here you're in charge, and you're challenged. Uh, what I would say is there are a lot of great techniques um, I call for the art of the ask is something I talk about, which is five essential questions and how to ask them. Um, and, 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 and the use of questioning um, is a great place to start because the first thing the questioning does is it changes the, the dialogue from me being a teller to me being an asker. So if I ask someone before I'm going to give a task, how are you feeling today? And how do you feel about the task ahead of us? I'm going to get a very different response as I articulate what it is I want. So there are a number of techniques that people who might not be intuitive, uh, but can use them effectively and, and connect with people on a completely different level. So what are some of you, I think you just shared one of them. What are, what are one or two other questions that you think really work to get that empathy and that dialogue, to your point, that dialogue going? Um, I think that, they come in the form of three different, what I call hidden agendas, which was part of the first book that I wrote, which is the first is sort of the, the, the ambition, you know, so what do you seek? Right. What does success look like for you? Now imagine, because typically what leaders will often do is they give an order within the context of what success looks like for them. <laughs> right. So the first thing is, you know, someone might say, well, success for me means that I can get, a, I can do in the course of the day what you're asking of me. The second is, you know, what I call a value system question. You know, what do you believe? What do you think we believe? And what do you think we're trying to do? Um, and aligning, aligning belief systems uh, is, a, is a wonderful uh, way of, of, of questioning. Can I just um, back up before you go on real quick? I love that, yeah. especially what you just said. So I just want to take a moment so we don't go too sure. fast for our listeners. Because asking people what the kind of, what do you believe we're doing here? I, I think not only does it help with empathy, but it helps make sure we're all on the same page. I mean, how many times, I'm in the innovation space, so I can't tell you the different definitions I get when I talk to a team about what are we doing here with innovation? Like some, someone's disruptive technology, another person is breaking all the rules, another person is adding creativity. Like, I think that's a really powerful question. I just wanted to stop and make sure we all heard that. So I think the term I like to use when I'm thinking about my own self-awareness is your core. This is the person you are as you are. The ambition that I just about, talked about is what I call a real ambition. What are you creating that didn't exist before? But I, I'm with you. I think your credo underpins everything, yeah. which is what do we believe as a group of people? And the thing that shocked me more than anything else when I reached the top of these organizations, and I remember going from McCann Erickson to Interpublic, which is the holding company, and my team who were little youngsters right out of college who now were basically running McCann as I was moving up, threw me a party. And they gave me a plaque. And on the plaque was the Kevinisms we will miss most. <laughs> and, <laughs> and on this things were like weekends are for amateurs and some really funny stuff. But what was really on it were all these other things I used to say, you know, um, nobody dies. And I, I used to say that what I meant is try something crazy. We're in advertising. Trust me, no one's going to die. Um, be kind. Listen. You know, all these kind of things. And what I, I'll give you an example. The best example of this is 
traveling to our office in Singapore, you know, and I, you know, I get to the point in the agency where like, you're like the ambassador, you arrive at the office and, oh, Kevin's here. Oh my God. And I'm wandering through doing my, like the Pope, you know, saying hello to the agency. And one of, and you remember I talked about this, nobody dies thing. As I'm walking through the office on this young lady's cubicle framed is the words, nobody dies. The point of this is, in a company of 26,000 people, something I said not only engendered a value system, but what I said traveled. Wow. Which is the other big lesson when my my boss is saying to me, well, welcome to the club, kid. You are now dinner conversation (laughs) where what you say matters and how you say it matters. You're listening to Conversations with Everyday Innovators on With Tamara Gondor Podcast. Let's take a moment to thank our generous partners that make this possible. I want to take a moment to talk about my friends at Howdy Puppy. Dogs experience all the same problems as humans when it comes to joint pain, anxiety, digestion, and arthritis. A great way to help our four-legged family members with these ailments is with CBD-infused pet treats. Who doesn't like treats? As you longtime listeners know, my Mastiff, Zoe, is part of my family, but is getting older and has some anxiety issues when strangers come around. Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats has totally changed her disposition, and I know she feels like her young, energetic, confident self when she gets Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats. There are many CBD-infused dog treats on the market, but the truth is that many of them are overpriced and ineffective. We've looked at dozens of CBD dog treats and found most of them disappointing. Howdy Puppy is among the best brands in the CBD pet business. They deliver consistent quality and their treats look and taste amazing, according to our dogs, of course. The company makes CBD dog treats in three flavors, steak, bacon, and cheese rolls. All of Howdy Puppy CBD treats contain natural ingredients, including high-quality full-spectrum hemp oil, all sourced and made in the USA. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Howdy Puppy, but before I put my name on the company, I had an independent lab in Denver, Colorado, verify the quality and consistency of their treats. They are truly as advertised. Go online today at howdypuppy.com, link will also be in the show notes, and use promo code TAMARA, T-A-M-A-R-A, that's me, to get 20% off the absolute best CBD dog treats on the market. You will not be disappointed. Howdypuppy.com, promo code TAMARA. Don't let them suffer needlessly. Let them enjoy life too. Do you think, I have so many questions about that in itself, because I think that goes back to what you were saying too about standing out right? And not being afraid and kind of looping it back to our initial conversation about advertising and, and leadership. Um, do you think that that happens by being bold and consistent? Hopefully that mm. makes sense. I think it is, the answer is yes. I think it's bold, consistent, and distinctively yours. Now, let me explain. Kevin Allen is a very eccentric fellow. You could probably see by all this crazy stuff behind me, which I have bucket loads. And the one thing I realized was the key to my success was the day that Bill Genge from, 
from Ketchum Advertising took me aside and said, son, you know, you need to step out from behind that suit because there's a pretty crazy kid in there. So over here at Launchery, we are all about helping people become everyday innovators because we're all innovators in some way. And, uh, but part of that is being your best self, whatever that is for you in your distinct way. So that really resonates with me because I think we spend too much time trying to be like what we think that, that archetype is. And I'll just tell you very quickly, though it's funny that I'm wearing red today when I tell you this story, but in the nineties, when I moved to New York city and I was in advertising and then brand strategy and innovation at a like global consulting firm. I thought, and I was in the mid-90s, so for anyone listening, you're going to be like, that's the most hideous outfit I've ever heard. But I had my favorite Ann Taylor three-piece matching red suit and scrunchie because that's what I thought leadership looked like. Like, if I wanted to be a professional woman, I needed to have this, like, this outfit, right? Or every outfit had to match like that. And it's so not me. And it's like I was hiding behind the suit like you. And it wasn't until this lovely boss that I had named Alpa who finally was like, what are you doing? Like, this is, I've seen you on the weekends. Like, this is not you. Yeah, you right. Step out of that suit. So I totally, your story really resonates because I had a similar Thank experience you. of, and hey, if you are that red three-piece suit, great, good for you. Like, be that. But it was not me, but I tried so hard, especially early on in my career, to emulate what I thought I had to look like. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's such an important thing. And I also think, I, be, I believe in a term called cultural permission that especially when you're you're involved in influencing people to innovate and create. I mean, you can't say to someone, all right, no, so today is nine to five. I would like by five o'clock, 55 and a half pounds of innovation. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you're setting a climate and most importantly, you're creating a condition for permission for them to be the people they are to feel loved and supported. And notice I use the word love. I don't, I didn't like the people I worked with. I mean, I disliked some of them, but for the most part, I adored them. And I wanted them to succeed. And most importantly, as a leader, I realized that my job is to create an environment for them to be safe and to feel as if they can they can reach for the, for the skies. I think if we get to a place where we, instead of resist or fear people's differences, we appreciate them, we can adore more people. I think we actually find that people that we don't like bring a lot to the table. We just, there's friction between us that we just have to get. Yes. Yes. Um, I got a couple questions in before I want to move on to the next topic. So one is, hold on, I got my, got to get my glasses on to read. Okay. So the question is, it's always so awkward on camera. Um, the question is, um, I, I have really strong empathy and I totally agree with what you're saying. Sometimes I'm afraid I step over the line of um, being too lenient. How do you balance empathy with those tough conversations or leadership moments that aren't as fun? Great question. Thank you for asking that. Fantastic question. And you're speaking to Kevin, the middle child, <laughs> Kevin, the kid who just who hates confrontation and it was the most difficult thing for me to do to have these challenging conversations i think ultimately and that also includes by the way letting people go which was the hardest thing i've ever had to do the worst i think first the first thing to say is if you truly care about the people you're working with let's even think of the people that are working for you and you care about them deeply then you have a, but you know, they, there's a wonderful term legal t- legal people use a fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. 
you have a fiduciary duty to them. If there's something they're doing that will result in harming their prospects for their future, mm. you've got to communicate that to them. But here's the difference. It's one thing to say, I don't like the way you opened the meeting the other day. You should do it this way. As opposed to a framing. That's why I love Dr. Kahneman, you know, his concept of framing. It's how you frame things, right? I believe that you will run this company someday. I truly do. And as a consequence, how you communicate and how you frame things in groups of people is really important, which means you've got to start from a positivity. So, for example, if we take your opening yesterday, here's how I would have done it. Now, remember, they got to feel good coming out of that conversation. So I found a way through my own empathetic way to still have those conversations as hard as they are um, and have people come out of that conversation feeling intact. So I'd love to get your perspective on this because what you're saying really resonates with me. And I'll tell you, you're, uh, oh, it must have been 10 years ago now. I was running this consulting firm and the, I got what I would consider some of the best feedback ever. We did one of these 360 performance review assessment things. And the best consistent feedback that I got was Tamara is really blunt, but you always know where she stands and you always know she means it with love or something like that. Maybe it wasn't right. with love, maybe right. like she means well. And I thought like for me personally, I was like, wow, I think that's the best feedback I've ever gotten. Cause what I took from that was, okay, People know I'm coming from a really good place. I want them to improve. Sometimes the conversations are fun. Sometimes the conversations are not fun, but I'll always tell you. And that place is coming, really is coming from love and wanting you to improve. So I'm just curious about where kind of for you, you see intent fit into that. Because to me, that's God, you could say, Kevin, you could say the meaning, you could tell me I'm like, Tamara, those pants do make your butt look big. But if I knew you like, (laughs) you know, you you wanted me to look my best, I'd be like, Oh, thanks for telling me, right? So so I want to make sure that we get in because I wanted to ask you about the four faces of change, um, embracing change and its human dynamics. I'm all about the human side of it. So I really wanted to ask you about this. So I, I think the um, having been in, in a position all through my career of being thrown into the deep end of the pool or having such a short attention span, which I do, demanding it, I was always in a condition where things were in flux and things were, were, cha- were changing. Uh, in some instances, um, in the low in the low and partners turnaround, you may remember the low agency. Um, we had 10 months to do that, or they were going to basically shut the place. You know, so not, to, not of course the turnaround took three years, but 10 months to show some some promise. And and so the dissection of the community by those who are catalysts or resistors is vital. But let me zero in on the catalyst for a moment because apropos your comment, they come in two flavors. The vocal resistor, who, as you so rightly said, are driven by some degree of, oh my God, I don't think I can do this, but they manifest their emotion, which interestingly, if you look up the definition of, the, of emotion, it is a reaction, a reaction to circumstance. So their reaction is to, to be fearful and defensive. But there's another kind of resistor. Hey, that's great. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> oh, and basically, worse. you can feel in a great big Bowie knife in your back as they do yeah. that. Now, 
there is something I call the persistent resistor. And after you have given the resistor every opportunity, maybe you've given them training, maybe you've given them additional resources, um, you've done everything you can through your empathy to provide them with a condition to succeed and come around, and they still resist, you have one pathway, fire them. One of the, one of the misnomers is that emotional intelligent leadership is kumbaya, it is not. Apropos, your description, the other person's description of you in the 360 is the profile of an emotional intelligent leader. It's like, right, being blunt and direct, but out of love is definitively emotionally intelligent. So, you know, Angela Ahrens, my hero, was an emotional intelligent leader. But let me tell you, she is no wallflower. <laughs> so there are times when you must exert um, and, and decisiveness, remembering, and I remember finally letting this person go after many, many, many months, and the emails I got, Kevin, it's about time. What took you so long? Remember the effect, yes, that these people have on other people. Well, I do think in general, there's a fallacy that, you know, um, collaboration equals consensus, which is does not. And to your point, emotional intelligence equals or being that type of open, emotionally available, I guess, and, and perceptive leader equals, to your point, kumbaya. I'm just, I just want because I, I kind of know the answer, but I, I think you're going to take it to the next level. So I want to hear you talk about it. Um, what is the, con- the negative consequence of that, of trying to be that kumbaya consensus? What happens to the people and to the work? Yeah, I think... I love the term calibration, you know, because each situation, my emotional antenna has to go up to say, how am I going to comport myself in this situation? For example, you walk into a situation and it's a crisis. It's a serious circumstance. And I remember saying to the colleague of mine, get started, and I said, Douglas, I love you more than life itself, but right now this is not a democracy. This is what we're going to do. And so I realized there are certain times, but notice that I still always provide a prefacing articulation that I'm not an automaton, but there are times when I'm not going to explain myself. Right. And you might have information that they don't have. That's exactly right. And it's very difficult when you're operating in those circumstances. And I do try, wasn't always successful, um, in at least closing the loop so that they could understand later why I was doing what I was doing. And it certainly requires quite a leap of faith for my people who are wondering, did he have a lobotomy? I mean, what's going on here? Um, and, you know, give them that loop back, loop factor. <laughs> so again, I just want to pause for a second, because I think that is so important from what I've seen in business and just in life is you may not always be explained in the moment. So first of all, there's a level of trust and intent that people believe. But second, to your point, looping back and explaining, hey, we didn't go with your idea. Or we went in this direction that you don't agree with because of these reasons. And doing that yeah. at the right time, I think, makes all the difference between ending up with a team of resistors 
and people who I use for calibration, which I, I love. Um, I've been using alignment. I really love calibration though, but of really saying, okay, we don't have to agree, but we need to be in alignment, which are very, two yeah. very different things. Do you know, it just, you, you just touched on another facet of this, which comes from, um, I think it's Hertzberg, the, the, the theory of contingency. In other words, that each personality will respond to slightly different kinds of stimulus. So let's take Peter, Paul, and Mary from the group, right? So Peter, I could go, and because Peter is exceedingly sensitive, my emotional antenna will say, I have to approach him on a particular subject in a certain way. Paul is very, very direct himself. It's all about the facts, which means I can say to Peter, you know, here's what I'd like to see more of. This was really terrific, but here's what I'd like to see more of. Paul, I'd say, that was really dumb. I don't know what you were thinking. Try this. Oh, okay. And happy as Larry, you know, because yeah. that, his, that personality. Yeah. So anyway, that's another thing is but only through empathy can you know how you would calibrate for each of those respective people. Um, I know I'm kind of running out of time, but I'm just, well, first of all, where can people go? I mean, we have, I have so many other questions I could ask you. We might need to have you back. Where can people go to connect with you, get your books, like all of that. Let's get that out of the way. Put all of it uh, in the show notes. Well, thank you. Um, we run a company called EI Games. It's an emotional, intelligent, game-based learning company. So Kevin at EI Games uh, is uh, the best place to find me uh, as an email address or certainly uh, eigames.com. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes too. Great. I'm curious. One of the reasons I was excited to have you on is um, not just to banter about advertising, of course, because not everybody has. It's fun to talk about those days, but mostly because you've had an incredible career and, you, and you've been a part of or led some really disruptive and kind of amazing things out there. So when I was reading your bio, I was like, wow, this is really impressive. But, but, but there's a layer, I think, to you that's beneath that, that's more about the people and the experience than just the like, launched this campaign, made billions of dollars, right? Like all that good stuff. What are you most proud of when you look back at your career? I'm most proud that people who were the most unlikely people found themselves in a position of leadership. Nina DeSessa, the first woman creative director, Suresh Nair, a guy from India who went on to become the head of strategic planning at Gray. Uh, me, the first openly gay guy to the board of McCann. Um, I'm immensely proud of that. Um, and, and maybe what I'm, uh, I'm also proud of is that my corporate life allowed me also to pursue some profound uh, passions. In the case, for example, of the, uh, joining the board of the AIDS quilt. And McCann Erickson, you know, we, we convinced them to, to sponsor and bring the quilt to McCann, the first agency to hold, you know, an AIDS quilt. Yeah, it was fantastic. So I, I think ultimately, I often think that it's, I don't remember the accomplishments as much as I do the people I was with and, um, and, and how our lives changed together. Because um, that is at the end of the day, when you look back, what you really are left with. Yeah, wow, I, feel, I don't really, I'd love to have some closing words on that, but I feel like what you said was so powerful that I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> so, that was incredible. I think we need to have you back. So there are more questions we didn't even get to. 
Um, but I, I just want to tell you personally, I got a lot out of this interview. I know all the listeners who are listening and now have and that will listen will. Um, and I just really appreciate the blend of business, but also the human side of it. I think we often miss that. I was, you know, I used to laugh because I think back in the day, I don't think this is true anymore, but you know, used to, I don't know if you felt this, but it used to be like you left your personal person at the door when you walked through the office door and then you became this other person. And all of us were expected to be like that. It wasn't just me or you. Um, and it was, and there's this beautiful, I think, transformation happening in our business world, especially after 2020, where, you know, suddenly you're seeing my dog and my kids in the background, and what my <laughs> life is like, right? Like you're, I've let you into my world in a way that didn't happen before that because you didn't see my world this way. So, but I think it's a, in, if I were to look at what's good that came out of it, I would say that this, this recognition of like the human side of all of this has become more prevalent, more important. I would agree. Someone asked me this morning, they said, oh, can you recommend a really good business book? And, inst and instinctively, I said, yes, Maya Angelou's Letters to My Daughter. <laughs> They're like, what? Yeah. And she goes, well, why did you say that? I said, well, just remember what she said. You may be forgotten for what you said, and you may be forgotten for what you did, but you're never forgotten for how you make people feel. And therein lies the, the, the key to success from my perspective. Have you read, is it Robert Greene's book? Is it the 48 Laws of Influence or the something? Oh, yes. Influence? My favorite story in there, and I'm, I'm sure you'll remember kind of what I started talking about, is when he talks about like John, um, when he went to a dinner party, everybody knew that he was the smartest person in the room. But when Kevin went to a dinner party, he made me feel like the smartest person in the room. I'm talking about like that <laughs> being real connection and influence. I've never, I, I couldn't tell you the whole story, but that's the one thing I never forgot. Wonderful. Kevin, Wonderful. thank you. What a pleasure. Um, I know that we'll have you back on. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations. By listening to this podcast, you took another step towards becoming an everyday innovator. To leap forward, visit www.gotolaunchstreet.com and take the Innovation Quotient Edge Assessment to discover your unique everyday innovator style and access the Everyday Innovator Digital Magazine for the top tools, insights, and inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another Everyday Innovator conversation soon. In the meantime, if you got a nugget of value out of this podcast, let Tamara know by leaving a five-star review and comment. Your review equals more guests, more listens, bigger impact. Until next time.